This podcast is made possible by your support and your donations. Thank you. And by the purchase of my book called Everyday Buddhism, Real Life Buddhist Teachings and Practices for Real Change. I will post an affiliate link to the book on Amazon in the show notes. And if you've already read it, please take a minute to rate and review and also consider purchasing it again for a friend or family member as a gift. Welcome to Everyday Buddhism, making every day better by applying the proven tools found in Buddhist concepts. Welcome to episode 81 of Everyday Buddhism, Making Every Day Better. In this episode, I talk with Kimberly Brown, a meditation teacher and author who offers classes and retreats emphasizing the power of compassion and kindness techniques to reconnect us to ourselves and others. In addition to her new book released in November, 2022, Navigating Grief and Loss, 25 Buddhist Practices to Keep Your Heart Open to Yourself and Others, an updated edition of her first book, Steady, Calm, and Brave, 25 Practices for Resilience and Wisdom in a Crisis, will be released in January 2023. Kimberly's teachings provide an approachable pathway to personal and collective well-being through real-life, contemporary meditations based on traditional practices. Kimberly is a longtime Buddhist student trained in both the Tibetan and Insight schools of Buddhism, and she participates in regular retreats at the Insight Meditation Society. Kimberly teaches at many meditation centers, including the Rubin Museum, Mindful Astoria, and the New York Insight Meditation Center. She also leads a meta meditation session at Shante Davis Center. Kimberly is a regular contributor to Tricycle, Lion's Roar, and other publications. You can learn more about her and her work at www.meditationwithheart.com, which I have linked in the show notes along with links to her books. In our conversation, we discuss the power of love for reducing mental suffering, the illusion of control and remembering things are not all up to us, being present for and taking care of anger and other mental poisons, and how to skillfully let go of hope and fear, among many other things. As you can tell by our conversation, I had many aha and healing moments while reading Kimberly's book, Navigating Grief and Loss. I'm hoping you can get a glimpse of Kimberly's healing style in this conversation, and it will then encourage you to find out more about her, her books, and her online and in-person presentations. You know, during this holiday time, I know many have a hard time keeping their hearts open and having a hard time enjoying the season, 
due to the pain of loss and grief that they feel. And I hope listening to this gentle wisdom that Kimberly offers in our conversation will offer some new ways for you to navigate the pain you feel. The conversation starts now. So Kimberly, welcome to Everyday Buddhism, making everyday better again. Uh, you are a honored uh, repeat presenter. I don't have many of them. So there you go. You're important. Wendy, thank you so much. I am honored and I'm really glad to be back and to be able to talk with you and your community. Great. Um, you know, I've been looking forward to talking with you again because I like to talk with you, but also because your book, um, Navigating Your New Book, which I think was just released, right? Yes, it was just released November 1st. So Navigating Grief and Loss, 25 Buddhist Practices to Keep Your Heart Open to Yourself and Others. And I really liked that subtitle, even though subtitles are getting obnoxiously long and I can never remember them. Um, but but um, uh, I liked the keeping your heart open to yourself and others. And you led with yourself. And that's not only is that... Uh, uh, sort of the same structure as a meta practice is, but it, it's also how, in my experience in working with you, that's how you do things. Um, that's a sort of a key characteristic of a Kimberly presentation. Um, and it's like your first book, Steady, Calm, and Brave, 25 Practices of Resilience and Wisdom in a Crisis. I think both of these are handbooks I would call them psychological and emotional handbooks um, for your first aid kit, you know, how to, not how to get through life and the, the stuff that happens, but how to thrive. Um, so I really do think you have a, a real way of offering a different way of looking at things that happen to us in, in the day to day. Thank you, Wendy. You're yeah. welcome. No, thank you. True, though. Very true. Uh, <laughs> um, and as a fellow writer, I have to say, I am also completely struck by the wonderful way you write. Um, it's like talking with an old friend. It's these, these, these like little stories of your life and people in your life. And you get so, I don't know, you get so comfortable listening to your little stories, reading the book, and then all of a sudden, pow, you sneak in a big teaching that knocks me on my rear end. And I think, whoa, you always do this. And you've done for both books, I've had that same experience. Um, and what I just hinted at before, one of the key features that I think you present that I don't see a lot in uh, other Buddhist teachers is your focusing or your foundation on compassion, self-compassion, not just compassion for others. I think that's how people think of it. You know, the Bodhisattva vow, it's all about the others, but you know, we all have heard it from everybody we've ever take, taught teachings with, you know, it starts with you. Easy to say, hard to do. And I think it's because it's almost um, negated in our culture. What would you say to that? Yes, I would agree that there is a lot of shame and a sense of being selfish 
if we, you know, uh, bring our kindness and our compassion to ourselves, there's also so much comparison. Well, I'm okay. That person's really suffering, you know. Um, and then, and it really causes us a lot of struggle. And, you know, Buddhist wisdom, the deepest wisdom is that we're not separate, that no one is separate, that I'm not separate from an object that I perceive. And, you know, it's very, you could talk about it in very complicated ways. But the truth is to offer myself compassion is also opening up to others. It, it, you can't really tease them out if you're really practicing it. And, right. um, and yet our, like the, la the English language, for example, Wendy, when I say I'm going to invite everyone, I am not including myself. But everyone does include myself, right? All beings <laughs> includes you and me and everybody we can imagine. So part of it is just kind of opening up to that wisdom and, and this misperception that we have. Yeah, yeah. And I, I like that. It's like, um, you know, the first two things you said right away was like, it's like, um, for, you don't want to seem selfish. And, and I've heard when I've explained the meta practice to people, they, a lot of times they say, Oh, I can't start with myself. It's like, well, then don't start with yourself End with yourself, do something, but get yourself in there. Cause you're, a, I just, like you said, you're, you're a being uh, just like the rest of them. And you can't just kick yourself to the curb too. So yeah, that that's really good. Um, I've had, you know, I have multiple pages of notes. I'm going to hold this up. Nobody else can see it because we're on video, multiple pages of notes. Um, it was a PDF book that uh, you're, um, so it wasn't a physical copy. So I had, to, I had to take notes, but that was good because when I, you take notes, it, you get it more into you instead of those little margin jots that I usually do for my podcast guests. But so I have multiple pages of notes that were highlights for me, too many to cover in this podcast episode. So I'll start with just a few that I think will lead to the most interesting and informative discussion points for my listeners. And like I mentioned before, I'm getting to be a, a repeat uh, record here on this is one, one of your key teaching maxims. And I dare say, a complete characteristics of how I see you as a teacher is that self-compassion. And you put it in your book, quote, learning to reconnect to yourself and quote, become who you already are, a dear and loving friend to yourself. You know, I love that a dear and loving friend to yourself, which has that, it reminds me of, um, Tit not Han a bit. It's that, you know, loving yourself. You're just this whimpering child that needs to be held. And and you have that sort of sense of that motherly. And I don't mean that like you're you're a maternal figure. You're younger than me, but that, oh, hold your hands here, heart, you're okay, dear, kind of thing. And and as a teacher and well, as a human being, why do you think? And you've also hinted at this, but I think I'm trying to get deeper with this, more of the loving, nurturing thing. Why do you think we have so much trouble doing that? I certainly do. I remember when I read your first book, and I don't know how many years ago that was, two, three Maybe years. Two. Yeah, yeah, that's a yeah. lot. 
Um, but I remember, uh, and I have the trouble with Tittenham books too. Is you have you, it was all is the hand to the heart thing, and there was another teacher that kept doing that, and it felt so awkward for me and like woo woo. I'm sorry to say, and it took me a long time to get to that uh, in that method of embodiment uh, of who I was. So why do I have trouble doing that? Well, or why do other people have trouble doing that? Yeah, no, I think that's interesting because, you know, Wendy, I had trouble with that. That's how I landed in, you know, into Buddhism and how I landed into uh, certain practices because I thought, I, first of all, I think most of us don't know what it means to really love ourselves. Like it's a word. And I sometimes hear young people say, I'm going to love myself more. All right, well, good luck with that. Do you know what love means? Ah. And to also find out, well, when you start to practice in this way and learning to love, it's very powerful. It's transformative. It opens up to a deep wisdom. But so what is love? Right. Uh, most of us, I learned love uh, and happiness, very, you know, intertwined. Uh, that was when I got what I wanted. Or if I want to make you happy, Wendy, I give you what you want. Right. right? <laughs> so either way, you know, this is sort of the way in which we feel happy and loved. And yet that is not a truth. That is such a misperception. In fact, I believe our entire society is somewhat set up on this. Yeah. And, uh, you know, of course, you can get a momentary charge with a new pair of shoes or a new job, um, but it doesn't last, right? Then you have to get and get, get. And so th what we're saying here and what the teachings suggest is, no, love is an abiding mind state. Happiness is a, an abiding mind state in which we are no longer suffering mentally. We're free from hatred and greed and neediness and delusion and that is to live in that kind of wise and clear state is to live in a very relaxed way you know and ready to open up to what happens next whatever it might be so it's it's this idea of loving is a true sense of caring for yourself and a um a way of re-relating to your experience, you know, yeah. and, you know, most students come to me in the same way I came to the Dharma. I was going to get rid of a lot, <laughs> right? I was going to get rid of all my panic attacks and my mean thoughts and all the things <laughs> I was ashamed of that came up, right? Uh, and then you practice for a while and you're not, nothing, you're not getting rid of anything. <laughs> but you are relating to it, right? It's such a more, a kinder way, a humorous way. <laughs> and so then you don't have to act out of it. Yeah. You know, I don't have to go yell at somebody about something or or buy a bunch of shoes because I'm so greedy. Um, I Instead, I can be with whatever's arising with this kindness, with this gentleness, and with this wisdom. Yeah, two things that really stuck out to what you just said, other than the one that you know, cracked me up was um, only because I can so relate um, is, is abiding that, that you, you use that word abiding. Um, uh, I don't think of 
we don't abide in things too much, you know, <laughs> because we, we, especially these days, I mean, it's a, it's, it's a, you know, 30 second sampler culture, right? I mean, it's, it's like, uh, I, I teach this all the time, you know, it, one, the, one of the key teachings of Buddhism and it's in the, it's in the original Pali Canon. It's in the, uh, it's in the, uh, it's in the uh, Mahayana teachings. It's and uh, the Vajrayana teachings. It's here or, or listen uh, or read and think and meditate. So what I see when people come to me and and what I did when I first came to Buddhism was it's that you know that nightstand Buddhism with the with the leaning tower of Buddhist books and that's just a sign that we we hear or listen or read and then we do a little more of that and we do a little more of that and we do a little more of that but we skip the thinking and meditating part and reflection is key and i think that's that a uh, reflection goes into abiding in all ways that not just the love for yourself but every part of buddhist practice and the other thing is is that you, you said that really struck me is 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 yes we are a transactional culture right so if i feel that i'm not getting enough love and and it's like well i'm not you know i'm giving you all this love and you're not giving me enough back and how dare you not give me this love <laughs> right yes yes <laughs> and it's a it's a sad it's sad because we're you know missing out on a certain on many qualities, but including the the experience of giving, right to ourselves and to each other, you know, right. When you like when you and it's all transactional, and you're kind of balancing the giving. Well, then you really don't get to just let go and give, which is a beautiful feeling. Yes, it is, and it's a. Uh... And it, you know it, it's it's hard, you know, because I you know people have to make money, and the, so that's how much do you give, how much do you get in that way. But in in relationships, there's that too, and it 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 kind of seeps into your relationship buttons as well, even if you don't want it to. It does. It it definitely does. Um, that that you start looking at things in that way, you know. And on a related note, you you talk about in your book, and this is a favorite subject of mine, probably because I'm still struggling with it as we all are. I think, um, equanimity, um, what a powerful concept and especially related to surviving and thriving change, the unknown loss, grief. Now the concept of equanimity can lead you through so many Buddhist teachings and concepts, yet it's the hardest doggone thing to practice. Uh, <laughs> you wrote, uh, and I'll quote it, and I agree with this completely, quote, equanimity is the opposite of believing we're able to control it all, unquote. Boy, that was uh, quite a succinct and uh, smack me on the back. Well, upside the back of my head kind of Zen thing when I read that. It's absolutely true. I will admit, and I know I'm not alone in this, that trying to control everything and everyone else 
<laughs> has been one of my greatest challenges in life. Can you share how you teach that? Yes. I mean, I think it's a big challenge for our everyone. Because, you know, going back to one of the things you asked, you know, why do you think everybody struggles with loving themselves or, you know, just showing themselves kindness? Well, one of the reasons is there's a lot of pressure on all of us to control everything, control our thoughts, control everything around us. And there's a pervasive sort of sense that if you can't, well, you're not empowered or you're a loser. I mean, yeah. there are so many business meetings I was in when I was young and <laughs> companies, right? And the owner would be like, well, we're going to we're going to make this happen. Um, <laughs> right. And there's uh, an idea yeah. like sometimes somehow, like if you can't control it, well, then you're a loser. And the truth is there is so little in our control. So, so little. Right. And to start to discern, OK, well, what I really can control is how I relate to myself and others. What I can control is um, my concentration, my actions, my words, you know, those I can control. But I can't control the weather. <laughs> you know, that is not going to happen. I can't control the election. Right. Yeah, I can yeah. vote and contribute to it. But there are so many causes and conditions that are beyond my um, capacity to change. You know, And I think that that idea that. You know, the Buddhist understanding that everything that's happening in this moment, nothing's random. It's all come about through endless causes and conditions into this moment where it arises, right? We can contribute to it. We can right. contribute to new, you know, wonderful, beneficial things occurring. And it's not all up to us. And I think that that is very deep wisdom. And it's interesting that we have such a delusion of control. And it yeah. gives us so much pain, Wendy. <laughs> it does. I think, you know, I, I I think I've thought about this a lot, this this illusion. And, and it, you know, it really, I think, came to the fore a lot during the pandemic. But I thought about it prior to that for myself. But it was like on such a global scale, this, this, oh, crap, you know, <laughs> um, everybody's like waking yes. up to the fact that that this stupid little bug is going to kill us all and we can't do a doggone thing about it. And, and, um, and to watch the reactions of people, I was just, uh, I was like a mesmerized tourist of how everybody responded so differently to that, that understanding, even though in Buddhism, we know this, very much. We know everything's impermanent and everything is constantly changing and, and that everything is interrelated with everything else, including little viruses um, and, and animals that harbor the viruses and, and all that. We know all that stuff, but we haven't, we're not a generation that's ever lived through that kind of shock and it was during that time that I was like so amazed that no one had the skills to deal with it. So they, most people, not no one, but most people didn't have that. That was an exaggeration, I guess. But most people didn't have the skills to deal with it. And so all they could do was make up little spiritual bypassing stories that something was going to save them or, or they were ignoring it all, you know see no evil, hear no evil, you know, kind of thing. Or that, 
okay, it'll be over and then we'll all be back to normal, which is what I'm seeing now. Okay. It's like no one's learned the lesson. Uh, so, so yeah, that's uh, it, it's, it is amazing. And, and I think it's just, maybe it's just the biological thing, which is also, if we look at the, you know, the causes and conditions from all the 12 factors and, you know, the, this, everything we learn in uh, Buddhism is that, you know, but as animals, we have to feel as if we can control our environment or we will not survive. So that's sort of built in. And I think the more panicked we get, the more we turn to that animal instinct, right? I don't know. That's my thought. <laughs> I think there's something really to be said about that because when people don't feel in control, as you're describing, fear arises. Right. And how do people deal with fear? Oh my gosh, anger or delusion. And we saw it, like you said, play out certainly in our society. Um, right. These very unskillful ways of dealing with the virus, you know, and one of the things I think that Buddhism offers is a long view. You know, a human lifespan yeah. is relatively short. Like you said, most of us alive today did not deal with a pandemic. Um, so we don't have, you know, a kind of a collective memory of that. Um, and Buddhism really encourages us, I think, to recognize that so much that Everything happening today came from the past. Everything in the future will come from actions we're taking now. And how can we contribute it? Even though, Wendy, I mean, here's the thing. We're all going to die. And yet all of our actions will survive us, the outcomes of our actions. Right. So, for example, I'm in a building. It was built in 1930. I am sure the architect is long dead. And yet their work remains. I'm affected right. by their the outcome of their actions. And so each of us can do that. You know, that's uh, I think that's such an optimistic way to look at my life, because that means that none of my skillful and wise actions are lost. Right. You know, they contribute it going into the future. Yeah, that's a really good way of looking at it. It's a way um, in the Jewish culture. That's how kind of how they think about things. Um I think uh, from from my experience with my Jewish friends is that's kind of how they're brought up. It's like, you know, they don't think about like like an afterlife a lot or they unless they're, you know, orthodox probably, but they even then I they don't so they think about what they're leaving behind for their for their kids and grandkids, sort of like indigenous people, same thing. It's like, what am I leaving behind? And that is a wonderful optimistic way. It's like, you know, and, and, and I, maybe it's has to do with our trans to get back to that. Our transactional culture is that maybe it's like, um, you know, I think there's a prevailing thought. And I wrote this in my book and, you know, like I said, we said at the beginning, I'm more of the crude Brutus pre presenter and you're the gentle one, but I, it's like mostly what I've heard is, you know, mostly people are like, you know, life is shit and then you die. Right. As, and, and Pete, honestly, I see people, that's how they live. That's how they think it's like, and, or I had a neighbor years ago, probably, well, when you get older, you kind of forget how many years ago, probably about 25 years ago, said, whoever dies with the most toys win. And then, and so, you know, his his driveway kept filling up with, with new cars and boats and things. <laughs> and then he and his wife <laughs> were trying to get pregnant and they couldn't. So they took fertility 
drugs and then they had triplets. <laughs> so, so I thought, well, you've got a lot of toys now, buddy. So, <laughs> so anyway, yeah. Um, you mentioned, and this is great because it's, it's such a lead into one of my favorite chapters in your book. Um, is you mentioned um, anger as a response to losing control. And you were very honest in your, your bursts of anger, which I have to say touched me dearly because <laughs> I have this, I have the same problem probably multiplied by 10, but um, you have, you have a chapter called when you're angry and it really spoke to me. And I was actually surprised to find it in the book and I loved it. Um, you identified that anger can be a sign that something isn't right and needs to be stopped or it can be a misdirected warning that tries to protect ourselves from loss, shocking news, tragedies, that's where you put it. Or in my case, I believe in many other cases too, from triggers from old wounds or traumas. Um, and in my case, I have a history of trauma with complex PTSD, and I deal with anger from a lifelong practice of stuffing and overcoming. I have been an overachiever all my life because I stuffed all my wounds down and said, I'll show them. I think that's what I, I don't know. My therapist uh, said that I was so good at doing that, that I had no connection to any of my hurt or wounds. I knew they were there, but there was no uh, embodiment or bodily connection. Um, until, you know, it came exploding to the surface in anger during the early stages of the pandemic for multiple reasons. Um, so I noticed that it is still what I do with hurt. I thought I had learned the lesson. And that's one of the things I think that happens. You have these patterns and unless somehow you could absolutely blow them up, you keep you know, it's like a, it's like you go through a meadow and then there's the, the, there's a path of the, all the grass that's beaten down and then there's the tall grass. And so you keep walking through the one that isn't the tall grass. And, you know, I'm seven, I'll be 70 years old in a couple months and I'm still doing the same things, even though I learned from my therapist that this was not a healthy thing. Um, so I noticed that I do it when I'm hurt, when I'm disappointed, when I'm shocked, or when I have profound reactions to um, societal, racial, political injustice and other worldly hurts that really don't have anything to do with me personally. So, and I also, as uh, everybody on the podcast knows, I lost my hair this year from alopecia. And, um, and, I, and I just, in reading your book, I am not joshing here. In reading your book, um, before I went to bed one evening, I had a, oh my God, reaction to the fact that I had made myself the queen of resilience about hair loss again. Um, and I had buried it and I didn't really see and feel the pain or take care of the pain. I just said, eh, it's just hair. I'll get by. It's not a big deal. And then when you're in that chapter, I saw it again. So can you share a bit about your teaching and practice around that particular kind of anger? Like you did in the, there's a practice that you had called hearing the hurt. I love that hearing the hurt, which is, sounds funny, but it makes perfect sense. Can you talk about that? 
Sure, absolutely. And I think it's important what you just explained in your own experience. So you have these past conditions that happened. And so now in certain environments, certain situations, anger arises in you. Okay. Most of my students, what they want is for that anger to never arise. And me too. I'm sort of like, well, I've been practicing for 20 years. I should not have anger. Okay. Right. And so the, you know, a wise perspective is, A, I didn't put this anger here. You know, it's not, there's no fault or blame. There are a bunch of causes and conditions in my life so that when certain things happen, anger will arise in me. Okay. And that is when my feelings are hurt, like you said, when there's terrible injustice or oppression that you know is going on, uh, all kinds of reasons that anger will arise. So number one is knowing, okay, well, I have it, but it's not mine. Like I didn't put it there. <laughs> but once it's there, now I'm responsible for it. Okay. So being responsible for your anger means taking care of it, you know, I anger is arising in me. What does that mean? That means I need to sit down and take care of it. You know, it's like a little kid coming to you with a, <laughs> a, a bro, you know, a, a bruised knee. You, you, you would take care of the knee, right? right? So in the same way, your anger, your being flooded with distress in that way is um, a sign that you're really struggling and suffering. And so to bring your attention and kindness there, like you said, it's tricky because that's very painful. You have to start to learn to do that. And it takes time. I meet very few people who learn to do that. You know, my (laughs) parents didn't right sit you down and say, okay, you're feeling angry. Let's sit. So now it just seems, you know, what do I do? And like you said, you, you have your ways of doing it. You know, you might scream, you might yell, you might, uh, kick a door, whatever it is, we all have our ways. And those ways aren't really addressing our suffering at all. They're, right. they're not um, useful. So to be present for your anger, even though it is for most of us, something we want to run away from. So you know, uncomfortable. We don't want to yeah. feel it, right? It's so uncomfortable. The whole body is going wild. You know, my <laughs> heart races and my hands get all clammy. I'm so tense. You know, I really don't like it. And to be able just to sit with that is just a deep, great kindness that leads to a deep, great wisdom that prevents me from using my words and my actions in very destructive ways. Yeah. You know, that's the thing you want, uh, really the, one of the key things you just said was now that you are aware that you have this anger that you didn't put there, you like, you didn't install it. It was, it was put there by a variety of causes and conditions. Um, the key is <clears throat> accepting that without blaming something. And I think a lot of, in my case, a lot of the times when I tried so hard not to blame the things that sort of led to it, like if it's a parent or whatever, um, you know, trying trying to have an, a deep understanding for how come they did what they did based on where they were and who they are. And so you give give them you give them all that compassion. <laughs> right? Meanwhile, you're still got the anger. And then when it comes up, then you blame somebody else that has nothing to do with it, right? So it's such a a, a vicious, icky circle, right? (laughs) 
Yes, and you know, I mentioned language really limits us sometimes. You know, the idea of everyone includes us, and also the language we use about feeling, especially anger. You made me angry. Donald yeah. Trump made me angry. Yeah, my parents made me angry. This is not to say harm is not done to us. Of course, that happens. We were harmed by others, and what arises in us is ours. And now yeah. that that is arising, how do we take care of it? They can't take care of it. Right. If they could, they wouldn't have, it wouldn't have happened that way. That's exactly it's, but yeah, it's, well, it's like, it's like, you know, I don't know. You can practice like you, you said, you can practice and practice for how many years in my case, decades, your case day. And, and yet, and you know, all these things and yet you still fall victim to looking outside or blaming outside rather than the the knowing that it's all in here right and it's that it's a that's where the, that's that's what you get that's all you have to deal with in here right now yet we're so quick to out there in the past or out there in the future or whatever right it, it's it's a funny funny weird thing <laughs> yes and it goes back to what we started about control yeah, you know uh, the limits of our control. We can't control other people. I wish we could. I many people would would really benefit from your advice, from my advice, right, from our experience, and I would benefit from others too. And yet, it is not up to us. We can't control other people, and that is that's so hard. It's a bit crazy making sometimes. Yes, <laughs> for sure. <clears throat> um. You you shared something too that reminded me so much of one of my favorite books and the Dalai Lama's favorite books, The Way of the Bodhisattva, Shanti Deva. Um, it's it's my handbook for life, even though I I'm much more like Shanti Deva hitting himself um, than I, <laughs> meaning I I I get it, but I don't always go for it. Um, you wrote when you're so angry that you feel hostility, stop, stop talking. Stop moving, stop texting, stop typing. It was, that was so, I don't know if you, you got this and I'm sure you did because I know you're a Tibetan practitioner or had been and an insight practitioner, I think. Um, Shanti Deva wrote, when the urge arises in your mind to feelings of desire or angry hate, this is one of my favorite quotes of all time, do not act, be silent, do not speak, and like a log of wood, be sure to stay. Like a log of wood, be sure to stay is one of my all-time favorite quotes. I run it around in my mind, but do I do it? Not so much. And if we could only stop social media, I think, and I wish, you know, I the look, if everybody could have seen the look on Kimberly's face when you, I said the word <laughs> social media, we don't even, shouldn't even go there. But, you know, I do think it contributes to this climate. Um, unless we have a way of avoiding it entirely, which most of us don't. I mean, many of my groups are on social media. I have to go there. I don't always have to look at other things, but I end up doing that. But social media is like the dictionary definition of not stopping. <laughs> <You know? laughs> Absolutely. And it's like, even if you had gotten yourself into this beautiful equanimous state and then you see some tweet or something and you go ballistic 
Yes. Right? It's a so without actually retreating from that whole concept, you know, I'm learning techniques of just avoiding it at different periods of time, you know, avoiding it, not letting myself get beyond reading. I mean, I don't respond anymore. I used to respond, don't respond. Like so I've graduated. Yay me. Um it, it, do you have other techniques for that? Um, continuous irritant called social media. <laughs> you know, similarly to you, Wendy, a lot of it has to do with being mindful of what you're doing. You know, I mean, I find myself, especially in moments when I'm upset or I'm anxious, you know, I'll pick up my phone and there I am on Instagram and I'm sort of just lost in this moment <laughs> to moment, right? Um, opinions and ideas and then my reaction to them, whether I comment or not, it's coming up. And for me, it's really coming back to mindfulness. Okay. I have to put this phone down. Yeah. I have to deal with whatever is arising in me that is propelling me to search for something on the internet, you know? And like you said, to also start to be wise about doing it, about who you follow, about yeah. how often you're on it, right? Um, it's interesting because there's a lot of studies about um, social media networks. So most of us, the people in our network are very like us. It right. is very uncommon to have, you know, your network and that there it's a very diverse group, especially in terms of politics. Right. So I've noticed there's a real need uh, for people to post something politically um, with the idea that they're going to somehow, I guess that that's an action that will inspire or something. You know, <laughs> or, or change, change. your mind. Yeah. <laughs> right. And it doesn't because it doesn't even get out of the, the network of minds that are just like yours. And it, I think there's a misperception that you've taken some sort of action that's worthwhile, <laughs> which I don't think you have, you know. Right. And so I think all of that is it's interesting. I think over the next few decades, we'll start to be understanding how to more wisely, you know, um, interact in that way. Yeah, exactly. I mean, in 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 real life, prior to the Prior to social media, I think about this a lot and I talk, I talked about it in my book, um, but I, 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 you know, I'm of the age that I remember life without social media and the internet and, and 20, and I remember life without 24 uh, seven news coverage. Um, and boy, things were quiet and my, and my brain could go on these long, wonderful journeys thinking about things and I could read a book for hours at a time and I could look out the window and watch my neighbor brush the snow off his car without being bored I mean it's like and in that time which we will probably never regain unless you know we're bombed to smithereens but um in that time and I remember how it felt the people we ran across had a lot, it, they weren't, it wasn't an all this insular siloed point of view. They were all over the place. They were all different nationalities, all different religions, all different political leanings. Generally, you didn't even talk politics because you just didn't. You They were just other people and you talked to them like other people. And it's like, it's. I don't even think, I think we've completely lost touch with how that feels. I live in a great little neighborhood that is like that, but not many people do. 
Um, and, and it's like, it's, 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 it saddens me, but there is no, there is no going back, I suppose, <laughs> except just going forward, I think, which you actually talk about in your book a little bit. <laughs> and I think, you know, as things, things have changed exactly, as you said, you know, in a very dramatic way, and in some ways, in, um, in harmful ways, you know, to ourselves as a society, and yet, people have a need to connect, you know, yeah. and when you, you know, interact with younger people, people in their 20s, they are still, they're finding different ways, you know, to connect with each other, to, you know, have space um, and openness. And I just think that that need won't go away, although it may be met differently. You know? Yeah. You know, I read, I read an article the other day that said um, uh, younger people are putting their phones down. So, so like they, they must've picked up on some, you know, prevailing wisdom from the ancestors or something to know that's not good for them. Right. So, um, so that's, that's hopeful. <clears throat> now in the same way that social media is divisive and, and, and crazy making, um, you have a chapter, and this is another one that surprised me. I hope I'm not giving away too much of your book. I'm hoping I'm just oh no, people. not at all. <laughs> um, and it's related to to this concept. I think it's called "If Your Family Disappoints You." Um, now, right now, we're talking about the world disappointing us, or or, or whatever. Um, but I that. You, you that you even approached that subject really was wonderful because from my own experience in these last few years um from the people I've connected with in my own personal life there's an epidemic of separation uh a uh, separation of people that who were previously connected which does not help the situation we were talking about earlier um we need desperately to be connected, but people got unconnected over the last years due to, you know, the, the divisive and fearful climate, the, the, the sort of me against you, how dare you think like that, blah, 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 blah. Um, and you wrote that compassion is the ability to be with suffering without judgment or blame. Um, and I'll own up to both of those reactions, judgment and blame. Um, and I pulled out this quote that really helped me come to terms with this reaction, um, this reaction in to this, my feeling of disappointment in others. You wrote, I quote, I opened my heart to myself with patience and awareness and became what I needed and wished for, a loving and supported presence, supportive presence, unquote. And I added an, an actual margin note to my note for my for myself. And I said, I am the one I am looking for. And can you share some of your insights and teachings around that? Because it really helped me. Oh, it's so true, Wendy. For, for some of us, you know, we just didn't have that, that, presence and that loving kindness toward that we all of us deserve right everybody deserves that especially when you're young you know to be given that and some of us didn't get it and for 
and usually the way that manifests is then we go about looking for it, right? And however that goes, it's very complicated. You know, it might be trying to get people to love us. It might be trying to get people to hate us. It might be, you know, many <laughs> things, right? To some, but somehow outside of us, we will find that that satisfaction and that love. And sadly, I mean, I looked. And still to this day, you know, at times I'm looking outside, it's not there. Right. It's not there. It's here, you know. So coming back to, uh, you know, when I say coming back to your loving heart, coming back to your beautiful qualities, you know, some people are like, Kim, I don't have those. But <laughs> you do have them. And that's what I learned. And, and my teachers really held that for me, that, yes, you have these qualities. We all have them. And if you just take a little time and patience and contemplation and listening and meditation, they will develop and they will become, you know, even more available to you for yourself. And then, of course, for everybody else, too. Right. Yeah, I'm I'm much better at it for other people than I am for myself. Absolutely. Because as as a I have my sangha and as a teacher, I you know, or when people come to me from the podcast and, you know, with their issues and they have questions and, and, you know, I reach out or I'll get on the phone, hop on the phone with them or a zoom call with them. And, and I'm great with them. (laughs) And, and some, and then it's like, uh, but no, I don't always remember to turn it back around, you know, even if sometimes the same, the stuff they're dealing with is exactly what I'm dealing with. And then I hear myself telling them that and I think, wait, you just told so-and-so. <laughs> um, <clears throat> here's a big one. And it's a challenge for you if, if you're willing to accept it. Uh, a wonderful subject you brought out uh, is about the Buddhist teaching of letting go of hope and fear. Uh, And interestingly enough, speaking of people reaching out to me, I recently received a message from a podcast listener about the question of hope. Long story short, they were like, you know, I know I'm not supposed to cling to this hope. And yet, aren't you supposed to have hope? And it was, you know, it was all the great questions. I mean, I totally got where he was coming from. And I felt his confusion and, um, yeah, so it was a hard concept to explain, and I was doing it in an email, and um, especially the difference, and you explained it so well in your book, the difference between skillful hope and clinging to fantasies or a desire for the future at the risk of not facing the present as it is. And I'll, I'll give myself a little credit. I did kind of go to that place, um, and and I think it helped. But you can you talk more about that that teaching because it is a trick. You know, like a lot of Buddhist teachings, that's a tricky teaching. Like a lot of people will come to you and say, "I'm sure you get this all the time." Well, if I'm not, if I'm supposed to live in the moment, should should I not plan for my retirement? That one always cracks me up. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so it's like that kind of question. So it is like that. And it's it's similar because um what we're saying is we don't know what's going to happen in the future. We don't know. If we cling to an outcome, it, it, it's we're going to suffer, right? right? All we know is we can contribute to the future, right? We can plan, we can plan the next week and have it all scheduled out and then let go. 
because that schedule is going to get moved around. Things are going to happen, right? There's going to be a storm. The train's not going to run, whatever it is, right? Um, And in the same way, um, when things, especially, you know, this book is about loss. So, you know, losing your job or someone's dying or sick, there's often so much clinging. I wait, there's going to be layoffs. I don't want it to be me. Please don't let it be me. Now, that is very different than saying, well, I hope that doesn't happen. I'm going to do my best for it not to happen. And if it does, I am going to meet it with my wisdom and my kindness, and I'm going to figure things out. And that that allowing yourself to have confidence is sort of, can be an antidote to that clinging, desperate hope, you know? Right. Of course, we can have hope for the future. We can know that things can change. We can know that we can benefit ourselves and others. We can know all of these things. So we have hope. You know, a child, you have hope that they're going to walk when they're born. Right. Right. You you feel confident that's going to happen for them. So in the same way, we can have that, but that clinging, oh, no, I don't want them to be sick. I want them to be healed. That is so painful. That feeling of desperation so better for yourself to be able to say i don't know what's going to happen i'm going to do my best i'm going to be with this person through it we're going to get the best care we can and whatever happens i'm confident we're going to deal with it you know the best way we can we're not going to fall apart yeah you shared a wonderful uh, quite a few stories along the lines of grief which is really a, a lot of what this book is centered around but uh, but um the the one that well touches the most and i think that's the one that was like the it was like the central character was your friend denise who you dedicated the book to and it and you really you really got deep into everything you felt about that like you 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 couldn't you couldn't believe it. And then you, you accepted it. And then, then you, you know, it was all these things. And, and now you and your friends are in a good place after Denise passed, but it's like that step-by-step I think was so educational for people who are going through it. And the other thing that I love that you said about grief was that it was a non-linear process. Um, and, 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 and I'm just throwing things out here now that I remember because, um, from my notes is, and another wonderful thing you write about is when someone you die, someone dies in your life who you may have had a complex relationship with, um, uh, it's it's it can sometimes be harder um and i i had that experience and you shared your experience with that because you had a complex relationship with your mother um uh, and although you thought maybe it would be better if she wasn't around it was still was still you know it was still grief you still lost your mom i mean it's you know there's no way anybody can take that you know change that despite who that person was to you or how, what kind of relationship you had. I had a similar thing. It's like, I wasn't not close with my mother, but uh, I had a wounding experience that came from her as a young, young person due to me 
because uh, coming out as gay as a very very young person and not being totally accepted which you wouldn't be in the 1960s at she was just doing what she thought was to protect me sort of like keeping me from the bad kids with drugs right um and i get that but it my little little self didn't get that and and so therefore <clears throat> the intimacy factor was gone and even though I had an okay relationship, she talked, we, she was a wonderful person. She was a loving one. Everybody in the world loved her wonderful person. And she died of a sudden heart attack. Um, not, I thought my dad was going to die. Our whole family thought my dad was going to die. And my mother like literally dropped dead of a sudden heart attack. And it was a, I remember that, that, and that was my first real experience with that nonlinear, that goofy grief where that goes on and on. And you're, you're, you don't even know what, I mean, I didn't even know it was happening to me. My mind got all screwed up. I couldn't think straight, couldn't work, couldn't do anything. And I kept saying to myself, but I really wasn't that close to my mother. And I had, I, I, I we, we had this, you know, we couldn't, connect on the heart level and blah, 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 blah. And then I realized, and your, your book talks about this is the reason it was so hard was because of that wound, because it, it was complex and never got healed. It got healed for me after she was gone because I, I actually said, someone suggested a good spiritual friend of mine said, you should talk to her. I said, Oh, Oh, good point. Okay. So I started sitting down to talk to her and everything seemed to shift into place. And I felt the intimacy and warmth that I was looking for that felt that I never got. And I think, and what I felt that she was looking for too, and I never gave it to her. So I, it was a, it was a lesson to me in that despite the crappy things that happened to you, you have to remember that they're going to die too, just like we all are. And when, when it happens, especially if it's your mommy, right? All right. of a sudden you don't have your mommy, <laughs> right? Yeah. That was yes. a re really good story that you shared. And I think other people could relate to that. So thank you for that. Oh, you're welcome. And thank you for sharing your experience. I mean, it's beautiful the ways we can learn to heal and you know what that one of your ways was to just sat down and talk to her. Yeah. And I mean, it wasn't it lovely. I didn't feel I didn't feel weird about it or anything. It was just like, okay, I'm gonna open up to the you uh that we the you and me and the relationship we could have had had we gotten past that crap. Yeah. 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 And in in the grand scheme, right? In in how it is all crap. Except yes. for understanding that, you know, it's the, it's, it's, it's the five reflection, you know, it's, we're all going to get old. We're all going to get sick. We're all going to get die. It's like, we have to keep remembering that, you know, when I tell the story of the Tibetans going to the charnel grounds and meditating on death, they think it's gory and awful. And are you kidding me? And, uh, <clears throat> and, and it's like, no, if you don't keep that remembrance in your head somewhere it's you 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 you'll never be able to bring to your life what you know an awareness that needs to be there 
You just never yes. will. Yes, and a an ap deep appreciation. You know, life right. is very short. Yeah. And who knows? Like you said, your mother just dropped dead. There was no yeah. warning. That could happen to any of us. And we all have those stories. So right. to be able to live in the moment of, wow, life is precious and very brief is not depressing. It's the truth. <laughs> and it enables us then to say, wow, life is so precious. My yeah. words and my actions really matter. How can I use them to benefit you and me and, you know, everybody? Right. And I remember what you wrote in your after losing your mother. I think that was the one it was after you're losing your mother. Oh, or it might have been after losing your father, which happened during your writing of the book. I'm sorry, I'm getting this confused. Was that you all? I think it was your father. It was that is all of a sudden you had an overwhelming feeling that, uh oh, I'm going to die, too. And it's like that's that's the kind of things that happen. It's like they. I, it, it felt feels to you like all all of a sudden like man I got to put the pedal to the metal and start doing some stuff right <laughs> yes yes it really um, brings home that sense of urgency yeah which I guess we can't live with every minute of every day but it's something we should be aware of you know I just lost my teacher this year which was uh and also a sudden death um. Okay. We were, we were, we were very, very close. And he's been my teacher, um, since 2006. Um, and we just lost him this year. Um, and, um, it was, it was quite a shock. And that was when the rest of my hair fell out a couple of weeks later. And I think it was because of the, the stress of that. Although I'm, I always tell the story that he was a, quite the joker and we had a great relationship around teasing each other. And, um, and he was bald. And, uh, you know, he had his, he shaved his head for spiritual reasons because he was the Dharma heir to his father in his, the, in the Shin Buddhist lineage that they were in. And so I, I have said to everybody that I know in, in my Sangha and my, and my colleague group that I think he took my hair, um, as, as a practical <laughs> joke. <laughs> so, so yeah, it, it is in. You know, and then when he died, that's when I thought, I I have to stop look stop doing all this stupid stuff. I have to start, and that's when I was got down to my second book again. Just like, you know, it was like I've been putting it off, and it's like I got to start building a schedule for that. You know, I'm I'm going to be seventy. This is ridiculous. He died when he was exactly eighty. I I mean, if I'm counting down the time, my mother died. You know, you do all that stuff, and it. But I think that's good. I don't think that's bad, and it's not um, depressing. You know, yeah. it's like oh, the world of do is a world of do, and yet, and yet, right? And yet, yes. yeah, yeah. But and also, I. I I laughed one more story and then I'll let you go because I'm very aware of the time ticking away and I'm taking your time. Um, I laughed. Lucky, it's a pleasure. It really is. Oh, so okay. You, it's really nice to talk to you. I laughed in recognition when you talked about how you were disappointed in yourself as a teacher and as a Buddhist practitioner. Well, I know we talked about this a little bit before, um, but still feeling these complicated feelings. And then you shared the story. And this is, you know, most of the stories that the other teachers share, I already know. This one I didn't know. And so I laughed out loud. I loved it. Um, sharing the story of the Zen master and grandmother. Can you share that story now? I think it's a great place place to end. 
Yeah, I was told this by a Korean Zen teacher. And the story goes like that. Well, first of all, there's a very common Zen story that you hear in Japanese Zen, at least. And it's something like uh, a Zen master's son dies. He's upset. His students are disappointed. And he says, yes, death is an illusion, but the loss of my son is the greatest illusion. It's something like that. It's like right, all right. emptiness, you know. Um, and then this um, Korean Zen teacher told that in a very different way. And he, the story is the koan that a uh, Zen master's grandchild dies and she um, in this telling, the, the Zen master is a woman and she um she's bereft her right. students come to the ceremony or the funeral and and see her and she's sad and she's crying and the students are really kind of shocked and they feel like well she's a zen master you know she shouldn't have all these feelings and this upset and she says to them yes it is true i am a zen master but first, I am a grandmother. I love that. <clears throat> it's it says it all. I mean, it's it, it's the relationships. Sometimes the most spiritual people we run across are people who don't have a practice, Buddhist or otherwise, and yet they 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 are so uh, easily have these open relationships to life, and the love just just emanates from them and emanates back to them. And it's like, I don't know how that works, but it's, they're always a great teaching. You know, it's like practice, all this practice. It's great. I'm, I'm glad I'm a Buddhist. I'm glad it's all happened, but boy, some people just got it, man. <laughs> it's true. Wendy. And the thing is we all have it, you know, we, whether you're Buddhist right. or not Buddhist, or like you're saying, you meet people with no spiritual tradition at all, but we all have it. You know, and I really feel like when we discover it in ourselves, then you also realize, oh, yeah, everybody else does have it. I have it. They yeah. Do. Yeah. There you go. See, that's the Kimberly way, bringing it back to loving yourself. That's what I love about you, Kimberly. Oh, thank you so much for uh, joining us. There's so much more we could talk about, but I am mindful about your time. I will, of course, post links to where you can learn more about Kimberly on my show notes, uh, about her books, her social media presence. And I will give this a plug, her awesome Substack Meditation with Heart posts, where she actually does little um, readings of her meditations, which I think you're going to love. Um, but before we close, is there something else that you would like to uh, promote talk about or anything that I didn't bring up? No, not at all. You covered it all. And I'm, I'm very touched that you read the book with such um, attention. That's really, it's very gratifying. Thank you so much, Wendy. And thank you for having me here. Thank you, Kimberly. It's, oh, it's what I do. It's like I tell people uh, when they, their promotion, people reach out to me, send me the book. You can't get on unless you send me the book. Cause I read them all. <laughs> well, cause I, you know, Sometimes they just send you, you, people might not know this, but promotion people who represent people who write books, 
sometimes they just, they send you this email and they say, you can talk about these three things. That's what this author would like you to talk about. It's like, and I'm like, this is my podcast. How dare they tell me what I'm going to talk about? I'm going to read the book. (laughs) That's great. I didn't know that about, you know, promoters. And I'm glad it's much nicer to have a conversation. Yeah, really. To me, it is the, that's the whole point. It's a conversation and it should go where it goes. It shouldn't, you know, it should just go where it goes. We're two people interrelating and wherever we take it. Right. So thanks again, Kimberly. We've had you on twice. I'm sure you'll be back book or no. And uh, we're talking about something else, but I won't give it away uh, just yet. So thanks again. Thank you, Wendy. Thank you, everyone. That's it for this episode. I hope you enjoyed Kimberly's loving teaching style as much as I do. And if you want more of it, check out the conversation I had with Kimberly about her first book, Steady, Calm, and Brave, 25 Practices for Resilience and Wisdom in a Crisis. That's in episode 51 of this podcast. Next up, some announcements. As always, a reminder, you can join me and others in the private donation-supported Everyday Sangha, which meets virtually via Zoom every other week on Saturday mornings at 10 a.m. U.S. Eastern Time. The Sangha is currently studying the Shin Buddhism classic, River of Fire or River of Water by Tayotsu Unu. So check it out if you're interested, especially if you're interested in Shin Buddhism. But it's it's a great everyday teaching book. You can also support this podcast and the other activities of Everyday Buddhism by becoming a community member for $5 a month. If you do, you you will have access to members-only podcast, an education series, a private group on a non-Facebook platform. I know that's uh, appealing to many these days who want to get away from uh, visiting social media too much. And also, we offer the bonus contemplation podcasts to members of our community. And keep your eyes and ears open for new offerings coming from Everyday Buddhism in 2023. If you don't follow me or Everyday Buddhism on any social media platforms we post in, you can go to the Everyday Buddhism website and join the membership community or the Everyday Sangha. Just go to www.everyday-buddhism.com and click on the tab that says Join Community or Sangha. I can't stress enough how important it is to this podcast and the related groups to receive your donations. I don't seek podcast sponsors and do not ask for financial commitments through paid podcast memberships. So my work and the cost of the infrastructure needed to support what I do is entirely self-funded, except for your donations. Please consider a one-time or continuing donation through Patreon or my website. You can find the links in the show notes. And also, As always, thanks too to all of you who write in with comments and questions. I do read everything, but can't always respond. 
I would love to respond to everyone, but just recently I had a nice email chat with a couple podcast listeners. So it does happen. (laughs) And another way you can help is to rate and review the podcast on your favorite podcast platform. You know, it's important to share podcasts with others. Give it five stars, give it four stars, and leave a comment if you find it helpful in your life. Just take a minute to comment so people will know why you love everyday Buddhism. That's all for the announcements. So until next time, keep finding ways to make yours and everyone's days better. <laughs>